This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. We're grouped in our usual class, so it seems like we got a little bit of outside interest, which is great. Um, law students, we have our usual sign-in sheet for you to sign in um, for the people who are taking this class at the end of class. My name is Michelle Morgan. Um, I am a um, adjunct professor at the law school. I'm teaching a course on human trafficking with um, two co-professors who I think are in the room or will be soon. Yes, Dr. Murray and Dr. Capel. Um, and I'm also a graduate of Villanova Law School, uh, 1997, and I'm an assistant United States attorney in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, um, which covers the nine counties in southeastern Pennsylvania, including the county we're in right now. And for those of you who aren't taking our class and don't know what that is, that basically means I'm a federal prosecutor. I've been doing that for 10 years, and among the types of cases that I prosecute, are human trafficking cases. When um, people generally think about human trafficking, they sort of automatically go to the image of probably a woman who's been smuggled from overseas, is here as an illegal alien, um, and is forced to work in a brothel, or is forced to engage in some type of labor. Um, and while that is certainly a form of human trafficking that occurs in this district, the type of human trafficking that we're going to talk about this evening is domestic prostitution of children. And we're not talking about children who are brought here from overseas, we're talking about children who are born and raised here um, and are somehow recruited into a life of prostitution as young as 13 or 14 years old. That is happening in every county in this district. It's happening in the city of Philadelphia. It's happening in Delaware County, Montgomery County, every county surrounding us. Um, and I have with me here today two agents from the FBI, Mike Goodhue and Rose Veshi, and they are two agents who work with me every day finding victims of this particular crime and helping to gather evidence so that I can bring indictments and prosecute the pimps who are turning out these children onto the streets of our community. Um, this is not sort of uh, an imagined problem or a future problem. This is a current ongoing problem um, for which we have a number of pending active indictments right now in our district. Um, so the format we're going to use this evening is basically kind of informal Q&A. I have a number of questions that I'm going to ask the agents to sort of get us rolling um, with ideas and it will help explain to you what the problem is and how we together are seeking to eradicate this problem, and then if any of you have questions, you're welcome to ask them. Um, so let me introduce the agents. Special Agent Mike Goodhue has been with the FBI for four years. Um, he graduated from Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island, and is originally from Massachusetts. Uh, he graduated with an accounting degree, and he worked for, as a CPA um, for several years before he joined the Bureau. Um, and we have Rose Veshi, who's been with the Bureau for eight and a half years. Um, she is from Delaware County, Pennsylvania, attended Millersville University, and worked in IT for a while before she joined the Bureau, actually here at Villanova University and also at Vanguard. Um, so do you want to show your clip before we get started with questions? Okay. Um, so what I'm going to do is just ask them some general questions that I already know the answers to, but you all probably don't. Um, about the type of work that they do, and we can sort of delve into it from there. Um, so, 
feel free to take turns or both answer the same questions so we can give as much information to the students as possible. Um, so can you all first tell us, how do you as agents at the FBI get leads or find out about potential cases involving the domestic prostitution of children? Um, there are several ways that we get our leads. Um, one of them is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It's called NICMIC. Um, basically, if you go on the website, www.backpage.com, which is a huge website pretty much devoted towards um, you know, prostitution. Um, girls post ads on there, or pimps post ads for girls on there. And, um, not that we're advocating that. No, 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 yeah. Please don't use university computers to go there. Um, so, but there's a way on there. If you see a girl who looks young, or you know, hey, that's my cousin, she's 16, you can report that to this national center. And there's, there's other reasons you would report girls um, to that center as well. So you report that center, you give that information, and then they figure out what location it is. If it's Philadelphia, um, they blast out uh, an email to Rose or myself, and it gives us information. They do some background on it. They might be able to provide a name. It's probably a fake name or a phone number, and then we kind of dig from there. So that's one of the avenues that we use to generate cases. Um, another avenue is like we work closely with the, our local partnerships with uh, Philadelphia Police, District Attorney's Office, um, the local counties, state police. Um, there's all sorts of different partnerships that we have. They might call and say, hey, look, we grabbed a girl. She's underage. She said she's with her boyfriend. We don't know what's going on. Can you come out here and talk to her and find out what's going on? And then that's, that's another way that we get our leads. Anything else you can think of, Rose, that I didn't mention? No? Yeah, there's a national human trafficking hotline. Um, some of you may have seen billboards on 95, Project Polaris. Has anyone heard of that or seen those billboards? Um, anyone can f phone in an anonymous tip or phone in information. If you happen to be out and you see a situation that looks like somebody, um, it could be human trafficking in terms of, there's, there's different types of human trafficking. It could be forced labor where people come to this country with a certain promise um, and then they get here and the job is not what they were told and all of a sudden there's 10 people living in a tiny basement in deplorable conditions and they feel like, well, I'm not here legally so I can't say anything. So we'll have people that uh, observe situations that appear to be something like that and they don't know what to do. Who should I call? Should I call the FBI? Should I call the police? So they'll call Project Polaris, which is a national human trafficking nonprofit organization, and a lot of times we'll get referrals through them as well. So I think they're, if you Google Project Polaris, you can find their website and a 1-800 number um, for contacting them. Okay, so is it possible for you all to generalize about the type of background that the kids have who generally get drawn into this lifestyle? And if so, could you explain to the class what that is? Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, the one thing I, I noticed kind of the overlying theme is there's like a daddy issue with the girls uh, that are involved. Now, I'm just talking about domestic sex trafficking. Um, whether that mean dad died when they were young, dad went to jail, dad's not in the picture, I have a stepdad. Um, that seems like one of the most common themes I've seen so far. Now, obviously, a lot of the girls come from horrible homes where their parents are drug addicts. There's sexual abuse involved um, with the girls when they're really young. Um, that, I would say that would be the most common 
thing. Every time we interview one of the girls, it's always like, all right, well, what's your family life? And there's always something wrong. There's, I've, I have yet to meet a girl who comes from the perfect family and got pulled into sex trafficking. Not to say that there isn't, but statistically, there's, there's usually something wrong at home. Um, just to add to that, when I first started working this, I didn't really understand what they meant by um, juvenile prostitution. To me, this was something that happened in Thailand or some other country, but not in the United States. So um, when I first started working it and we were finding these girls, 13, 14, 15, 16, here in the United States, in Philadelphia, in even Delaware County, I've had a girl from Delaware County that are forced into prostitution. I was sort of shocked and couldn't really understand um, until I got to know the girls. And just like Mike's saying, um, they all have a story. They all have some reason. None of them said, geez, I really like to get involved in this. Um, they all ended up in situations in life. Um, everything from I had a girl who didn't do drugs, was not in trouble, but her mother was a drug addict. And in order to put food on the table for her and her little sister, she got involved in prostitution at 15. So some pretty sad stuff. Um, that's a general background. Might give you a good idea of a general background of what a girl um, that we deal with is like um, a lot of times if we pull their um, their records with um, child and youth services, they've had interactions from the time they were two. There's been problems, um, whether it's been physical abuse or sexual abuse, things like that. So while there's no profile of what every girl is going to be like, there's definitely patterns that we see um, throughout the, uh, the victims we deal with. So. Yeah, foster care. We see a lot of girls as well that are taken from their homes for the variety of reasons. They end up in foster care. And um, I'm not knocking the youth and child services, but they're overwhelmed. They have too many cases, and they don't get to see the, check on these girls. So a lot of times, they're taken from one bad situation, put into another. So they'll run away from foster care. Um, and I have a video I'll show you guys at the end where the problem becomes they're not criminals, so we can't throw them in jail, right? But if we don't put them in juvenile detention or somewhere, they're just going to if we drop them off at a shelter or a foster home, by the time Mike and I drive away, they're out the back door. So here's the dilemma. Do you force them into some type of lockdown situation? They're not criminals. We, in the FBI, we view these girls as victims, okay? Even though they're out prostituting and they're committing a crime, they're under 18, they're victims, okay? They're victims of this um, sex trafficking industry. So the dilemma becomes, if they're running away from foster cares, and I take them to a shelter, which it's very hard to find shelters in the United States that will take girls under 18, what's their incentive to stay there? Okay, and sometimes I've had to take girls to like the juvenile detention center, which is not good, but I know they're going to be alive the next day. I know they're going to be there and they're going to get services, they're going to get counseling, they're going to get alcohol and drug rehab if that's what they need. So that's kind of the dilemma we face um, with these victims. And, and for those of you who aren't taking the class and, and probably aren't familiar with the federal law in this area, there is a federal law that states that anyone who recruits, entices, harbors, transports, or obtains a minor, that means a person under the age of 18 under federal law, um, knowing that the person will be caused to engage in a commercial sex act is guilty of sex trafficking, okay? So basically, if you're in the role of a pimp and the person you're dealing with is under the age of 18, you are trafficking a human being um, if, if she is caused to engage in prostitution. Um, the penalties federally are very severe. Depending on the age of the victim, there's going to be, if she's under 14, a 15-year um, mandatory minimum. 
or if she's between the ages of 14 and 17, a 10-year mandatory minimum. You compare that with state law, um, because there are state laws for things like promoting prostitution and even trafficking, but many times if the district attorney's office prosecutes the case, the person is going to be penalized with a number of months in jail or even probation. So when the investigation becomes federal, because um, typically because it affects interstate commerce, which in the case of a back page ad that's spread out all over the internet for the whole world to see, that is affecting interstate commerce. Um, that's where the feds become involved and that's where the penalties become very high, the stakes are very high, um, and we are aggressively prosecuting these cases. What, what Rose is talking about is the scenario where um, these victims really don't want to be involved in this process, and it's a lengthy process and an unpleasant process. So they tend to vanish before our eyes. Um, and one of the ways that we can control that is I can have the court issue a material witness warrant, which means that this person's testimony is material for a pending trial, and actually have the juvenile victim incarcerated for the period of time that we're waiting for trial. Um, it sounds brutal, it is brutal, it doesn't make anyone very friendly toward you, who um, you've done that to, but sometimes, quite literally, we feel like it's the only way we can keep these kids alive through the process of prosecution so that we can have the pimp locked up. So it's a very difficult judgment call to take, but if it's between that and your case goes up in smoke because you don't have anyone to testify, sometimes we have to make that hard decision. Um, the next question that uh, I think is pretty interesting is how generally, what types of patterns have you seen and how kids get drawn into this kind of lifestyle? Okay, Rose, you wanna go first? Sure. We'll switch it up. We have seen, I had a tip where a father called the police and said that uh, after school, a guy showed up in a Mercedes Benz and he was handing out business cards and told gr the girls that um, he, they, he was gonna make them models. Um, and we've seen similar behavior at the mall where girls are, you know, young girls are, looking for you know attention and a guy who seems to have some money will hand out a card and say I'm a photographer you can become a model um, we've had girls recruited through websites like Facebook girls recruited through other websites um, you want to add to that? Um, one of the things that I, I've seen I work in some of the really crappy areas of Philadelphia you guys have probably witnessed the nice areas um, there's a section of the city called Kensington which Kensington Avenue has like, you know, the, the main prostitution track. Um, they call it a track. It's basically where girls just walk up and down and flag guys down for sex. Um, and out there you'll see like uh, total drug addict girls who need to make money to support their habit. So there's predators, these pimps that just drive up and down Kensington Avenue and say, look, you know, it's 20 degrees outside. And if you want a warm place to stay and all the drugs you need, all you gotta do is stay at my house and they'll put the, the girls up in like a tiny room and just send guys up to their room and the girls have to have sex with them for money. And the pimp takes like half the money and the other half goes to drugs. So the girl's basically like enslaved in, the, in, that, in that house. So that's one of the things that I see um, girls getting recruited into is like they have a drug habit that gets out of control and then, you know, all of a sudden, they're, they're selling themselves for money to support their drug habit. So. Just to add to that, Mike and I have been to various trainings, and um, 
one of the things they, they taught us is that these girls are all looking for three things, love, attention, and affection. If they don't get it at home, they're going to go out to the streets and they're going to find it there. Now, it might be negative love, attention, and affection, but, you know, they're still looking for that. So a lot of times these guys are very smooth. They know that these girls are running away from bad situations, and um, they're going to show them that they love them. They're going to give them attention and affection in the beginning, and they're going to give them this perception that, you know, I'm going to be your boyfriend, okay? So sometimes these girls... They're just involved with this one guy, and she, they think they fall in love with this guy, and that's their boyfriend. They, they don't just walk up to these girls on the street and say, hey, you want a prostitute for me? They tell them they're beautiful. They tell them they love them. They take them, they buy them a $1,000 wardrobe and things like this. These girls fall in love with them, and then they think, this is my boyfriend, this is my boyfriend, which is very challenging for law enforcement because... When these girls show up um, in an emergency room or at the police department and say they've been raped, they say, I was raped by my boyfriend. And that's not problematic, but what's problematic is if you're not trained to ask more questions, you don't realize that to this girl, this is her boyfriend, but in reality, this is her pimp. I have victims till to, to this day that tell me he's not my pimp, I'm not a prostitute, he's my boyfriend. So there's sort of a psychological process that goes along with this as well, where and they know that they have other girls working for them and other girlfriends, but they still, they fall in love with these guys and they become so dependent on them that they think it's boyfriend-girlfriend. So um, that's just another way that these girls get recruited. So the going rate um, in Philadelphia for prostitution is typically about $150 an hour. And most of the girls that um, these two agents have met generally say they're engaging in between five and 15 dates, quote unquote, per day. Um, so in many cases, a single girl can bring in about $1,000 or more cash for a pimp in one day's time. And they work seven days a week, they don't have any days off. Um, they're typically put in a hotel room to do this kind of work and they take turns using the room while everybody else waits in a different room with the pimp. Um, and it may surprise you to know that when we're talking about juveniles in prostitution, they receive exactly 0% of the money that they earn, $0 and 0 cents. Um, what they think they're being given, <laughs> um, and sometimes they use the phrase we're being taken care of, is staying in a trashy motel room um, with a bunch of other girls and occasional fast food and maybe sometimes an outfit um, for their work for weeks or months on end. It costs very little to put up the back page ad, it costs very little to get a disposable cell phone with minutes on it and that's all that the pimp needs, cheap motel room, back page ad and cell phone to have a business up and running in about, I don't know, 10 minutes. Um, and then they can draw $1,000 a day or more from a minor and not give back any of that money. Um, can the two of you talk about how these victims perceive, if they're not getting any money, why they want to stay involved in the business? Um, I think there's, there's several different things you could say to that. Um, I think one of, one of them you could say like almost like the Stockholm Syndrome where a girl gets beaten down so many times by this guy, it's like she can't get away. Like there's been many girls we've talked to who have, could have just walked out the front door and left, but they don't. Like they feel like they can't leave um, either through fear 
that the guy knows where she lives. He has his uh, he has her ID. Um, he's just they have like such good mind control over these girls that they're like scared to death to even think of leaving the guy. Um, so that's one of the reasons they stay with them. Uh, another reason, um, the house, the home they grew up in might be just as messed up. I mean, that sounds pretty bad, but they might say, well, at least he's giving me McDonald's. At least I'm eating, you know, every six hours or something uh, at home. My dad, my stepdad's molesting me, and I don't get fed. Um, so there's a, there's a bunch of different scenarios and things that are going wrong. Uh, where these girls think that they have to stay with these guys. Do you have anything to add, Rose? It's just the same thing about the love, attention, and affection. You know, some, even negative is better than none. And some of these girls think they're in love with these guys, and um, they just become very loyal. They become brainwashed. Um, there's, you know, we've had pimps put out cigarettes on girls. We've had pimps beat girls. We've had pimps tell girls, if you don't do this, I'm going to go get your little sister who's 12 and recruit her into this business. So they stay for fear of their family safety, um, fear that they won't be accepted back into their community, that they'll be labeled as a prostitute, um, that they're, they're, if they do have a boyfriend um, and they don't see the pimp as their boyfriend, that that person won't accept them. Um, I had a case where one of the pimps was sending photos of the girl to her legitimate boyfriend to, to kind of blackmail her. If you don't stay to work for me, I'm going to tell your, your boyfriend that what you're doing. So um, there's a variety of reasons. A lot of them involve like, you know, psychological reasons and fear and, and domestic. They're basically like domestic abuse victims, a lot of these girls, domestic violence. So those are just some of the reasons. Um, can each of you describe the most difficult victim that you've worked with and what her behavior was during the course of your investigation? This one might be Okay. Um, I would say the most uh, difficult witness, um, this girl, we'll call her May Lee, that's her street name. Um, she got into prostitution probably when she was 15. She was in and out of DHS custody in Philadelphia probably since she was two or three. Her dad was a bank robber who went to jail, was out of the picture for a long time. He's still out of the picture. Her mom was a prostitute with AIDS. She died of AIDS a couple years ago, um, and that's all she knew growing up. She was thrown into a really messed up situation, and this guy came along when she was 15 years old and basically recruited her into the whole pimp lifestyle. It started out, you know, she was just hanging around, he was buying her stuff, and then within like a couple weeks she was prostituting for him. Um, when I first interviewed her, um, she was about, she had just turned 18, um, so she had been working for a couple years, um, but she's like the main piece to our like puzzle as far as the case goes. She's the main witness since she was a juvenile when she worked for this guy. Um, so just building a relationship with her, over the past year and a half now has been extremely difficult because for one she changes phones like every three weeks she loses phones she throws phones at John's she runs away she lives in this flop house she lives in that flop house she's homeless she gets arrested she gets arrested in different counties um, I've reached out to her grandparents who have tried a zillion different ways to get her help and she refuses to get help. I've talked to her messed up aunt who is totally just as screwed up as she is. Um, 
and just trying, just trying to like find out where she is is the, the most difficult thing. Um, the way I find out where she is is I cruise on Backpage.com and look for her ad. And usually it's on a Friday night at like 11, like, what life do I have? I'm sitting at home on Backpage, like, oh, where's May Lee? <laughs> there she is. So then I call her up and then she's like, oh, Mike, you found me again. I'm like, all right, well, do you want to meet up on Saturday or Monday? Uh, it's never on like a weekday at 9 a.m. or anything. Um, so, and then just, just like trying to get her to trust you that I'm actually looking out for her best interest. Um, it's just like, she's been in it for two years and that's, that's like in prostitution years, that's like 10 years, you know, it's crazy. Um, so she is by far the most difficult girl I've had to deal, to deal with so far because she's got the maturity level of like a 13 year old. Um, but she's like, now she's almost 19 or 19 or 20 now. I just, it's, it's sad to see, but it's like so difficult to just find her. And finding these girls and getting them help and getting them treatment. I, I put her in two different, re, three different rehab centers and she ran away from all of them within like a day. Um, I'm like, oh yeah, I saved her. I put her in a rehab center and then I get a phone call like I'm an hour away from the place. They're like, oh, she left. She said thanks, but no thanks. See you later. So she is, she's addicted to crack. Um, the, her pimp got her addicted to crack within like a couple weeks um, of her being there. And it's, she's just got a crack habit and that's what fuels her prostitution. She probably spends, I don't know, 500 bucks on crack a day. Uh, it's just, it's sad, it's really sad. And I, I, it's sad to say, but I think at this point she's almost like, a lost cause and I don't want to give up on her but at some point like her family has already given up on her um, it's just it's too bad Rose, how about you? I'm a little reluctant to tell this story because I've become the butt of many jokes as a result of it but that's okay for the better of the education of the group I will tell you guys that my biggest nightmare uh, of a victim is a girl who I just recently came across uh, a couple weeks ago we did a sting and uh, it was not in the city it was in one of the counties in a very nice neighborhood and we found a girl who looked young so we did an undercover operation and we recovered uh, a lot of girls all of them were adults except this one she lied she told me she was 19 then she broke down told me she was 16 she lied about her name, she lied about her age, lied, 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 which is not unusual. Um, we tr listen, we try and understand that these girls are in a very difficult situation. Um, and Mike and I are up here saying, oh, they do we understand, but we, in order to help them, I have to know like, who, who they are. Like, what's your name? What's your real name? You know? So I talked to her for a couple hours, and um, the county she was arrested in wanted to put her in juvenile detention because they were concerned that she was going to be prostituting again. And, and we you know, talked to the district attorney's office, and they said, no, let's, let's, she, if she has a mother and a father that will take her home, then let's let her go home. So we did. So about two days later, Mike and I went to pick her up and bring her to our office and just get her something to eat, ask her how she's doing. We don't push these girls too hard, like, oh, who's your pimp? Who's this? Who's that? We just try and build a rapport, let them talk to us. If we push them too hard, we're gonna, you know, they're not going to tell us anything. So it wasn't going too well. She was, she was telling, I mean, sometimes we know information and we ask questions and they're, you can tell right away that they're telling, you know, I'll ask a question I already know the answer to, to see if they're going to be truthful. And I could tell she wasn't going to be truthful. So. I said, that's enough, we'll, you know, we'll take you home. And I have been in touch with mom, and mom's very concerned. 
So we dropped her off around four o'clock and said, look, we'll try this again next week. She wasn't, she was dropped off by an individual. She was not telling me who that was, probably her pimp. So at five o'clock on a Friday, I get back to the office and my work cell phone starts ringing and I think, oh, this is her, okay. And I answer it and uh, I thought, oh, this is the wrong number. This guy asked me what my name was. So I hang up. About a minute later, I get another call. Somebody asked me, what am I wearing? I thought, that's odd, what's going on here? I hang up. Another minute later, a guy says to me, uh, what's your name and uh, what's your name and are you available? And I'm thinking, what is going on here? These calls continue every minute, every minute, boom, boom, one after the next, one after the next. I started getting out of state area codes and, um, you know, they're not calling, they don't know my name, but they're telling me their name and that they're available. So finally I said to one of them, where did you get this phone number? Because I didn't say this is an FBI cell phone, but I'm thinking, where in the world? And they said, backpage.com. So my victim <laughs> went on backpage.com, made an ad for me, and put my phone number there. An hour after I dropped her off. So these, this was, I was on there about 10 minutes and I had about 12 calls, uh, which I'm famous for all the wrong reasons now. There was no, there was no picture of me. Um, unfortunately, there was a picture of her. So I don't know why she did that. I called her and she said she didn't do it, but she would take it down, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if you didn't do it, you couldn't take it down. But just to show you, like, I mean, I'm now like the, the this is the funniest thing in the office now. Not really, but you know, it is. It was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> It's not really that funny. Tell them what the, the, the title was. Sexy Dominican Female? Yeah. yeah, there yeah. And that, a lot of the guys were asking, they were like calling me that when they were calling me. And I'm thinking, what is going on? I'll get a wrong number once in a while, but it was like rapid fire. What's scary is there's a picture of a 16-year-old girl, and there was 10 or 12 calls within minutes of her putting the ad up with my phone number. So... Uh, later that night, her mom called me and said she thinks she's doing this again. And then I f she told me that she's never been in touch with her father. And the next week, I got a call from her father who said, that's not true. I'm involved in her life. She basically told me she didn't know her father. And he said, and mom and dad said, yeah, that's because she's afraid of him. So I had to tell dad on the phone, your daughter's prostituting. And it was very, very difficult. He's very upset. Um, he has some health issues that he's trying to deal with now on top of it with this. So... Definitely a difficult victim. Um, I'm not giving up, but she's going to take some work. And probably what will happen is she'll get arrested again, and this time she will go to juvenile detention. Because she's, I think she, you know, if she's on probation or something like that, they can hold her. So that's not what we want. But I also don't want to drop her off and then go on back page and she's on there or my phone number's on there again. So not, not a big deal, but um, you know, definitely one of the challenges of the job. So you both talked a, a little bit about this, but I want to expand on it somewhat. When you are approaching your initial interview with a victim and trying to um, build rapport with her so that she is more likely to disclose what has actually happened as opposed to lying, um, what sort of things do you do to build up that trust and rapport? Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, one of the things I learned, because I used to work uh, a different violation, I worked a lot of child pornography, people who download child pornography, people who molest young children, so I wasn't familiar with how to talk to teenagers about you know, prostitution and who their pimp is. One of the first things I learned in training is you never want to be like, well, who's your pimp, who's your pimp, who's your pimp, who's, you know, who's victimizing you? They don't see it that way. And usually when you get them, they're still enamored with this person. So the last thing I want to do is put that person down. Even though we all in this room don't like this person, we agree this is a bad person. If I start off the interview and be like, that pimp is a bad person, who is that pimp? Even the word pimp, no, 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 no. 
I've learned to say things like, so who's taking care of you? Who's helping you out? Who's giving you rides? You know, and, and Mike will talk about it, but even more simple, we just ask them how they're doing. Hey, what are you, you, know, what are you up to? Do you go to school? Do you have brothers and sisters? The first few times we, we meet them, we try and keep it very, very simple because they have to learn to try. Here's two federal agents talking to a juvenile, okay? And a lot of people will say, well, where are their parents or where is their lawyer? Well, we're not talking to them because they're a subject of a crime. We're not interrogating them, but to a 15-year-old, it might feel like that. So the first thing I try and do is just get to know them and get, let them know that we're not here, you know, if they did something illegal or something like that, we're not here to get them in trouble. We're trying to help them. Um, so I kind of avoid questions about who's your pimp and just trying to build rapport, maybe take them to get something to eat, um, talk to them about what, what do they need? Do they need clothing? What, what are their needs? Um, things like that. You know, how's their living situation? And just try and slowly build up a relationship. It takes three or four um, interviews to even really start talking about things of substance usually. So I'm sure Mike can tack on to that. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is going into it knowing that the first time you meet this girl, she's going to just flat out lie to you about pretty much everything. So you just got to like accept that. And for me, that's really difficult. One, I don't like when people lie to me. And then, but two, like they're a victim. You're like, you're a victim. Why are you lying to me? You know, it just doesn't make sense. Um, you expect them oh, to just say, oh yeah, he's been pimping me out forever. Please save me. Um, that's what I would hope to happen, but it never does. So basically to build rapport, like Rose said, you got to find some type of common ground. Now I'm a 31 year old dad what the hell do I have in common with a 15-year-old prostitute? Um, you got to find like some... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you got to find some common ground, whether it's, I don't know, American Idol or TV or something, and basically build up some, some type of common ground and then just build off of that. But it's going to take numerous times. Um, like one girl, like, for example, it was like totally pulling teeth just to get her to say anything. And then... After like six or seven visits of finally talking to her, talking to her parents, um, she like comes out with new information every time I see her. Oh, by the way, I used to work for this guy. And it's like, well, who the hell is that? You never told me about that guy. Um, so it, it takes time. You've got to have like complete patience. Um, it's not like a typical law enforcement type interview where you're, you know, you just arrested somebody who robbed a bank and you want them, you know, to admit it. Um, it's not that at all, and it's, it's building trust, getting the girl to trust you. Um, what I like to do is I like to go out and visit whatever family they have just to try to see what the hell's going on at home, because there's probably something going on at home, and just constantly keeping touch with her parent or guardian to let them know, look, you know, I really do care about this girl. I want to make sure she's doing good. Um, so I think that goes a long way. When you say, oh, I talked to your mom the other night. Um, she really is concerned about you and stuff like that. I think that goes a long way. So. Just to add to that, one of the things that's nice with Mike and I is that, you know, we're two different agents, two different people, and if there's times where the girls may feel more comfortable telling me something, but it's also very important for the girls to respect and understand that Mike respects them as a male because these girls have a history of not trusting and not respecting and not having positive interactions with males. So um, a lot of people will say, well, you know, how come Mike talks to these girls? It's important for both of us to be involved with them so they can see that there are males that they can trust and males in positions of authority that they can trust as well. So um, it, it does work out nicely to have both of us on the team. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I don't know if any of you know any teenagers, um, but <laughs> they can be difficult um, young people to interact with, 15, 14-year-olds, and this is sort of like teenagers to the hundredth power um, in terms of the hostility and anger that these agents are met with. Like the first interview basically is like this, you know, that's their reaction to being spoken to by law enforcement. And they've probably been arrested and treated pretty badly by cops who weren't educated about the fact that they could be looking at a victim versus a perpetrator. Um, and I don't want anyone to think that this is the average day in the life of an FBI agent. These agents are going way above and beyond the call of duty of, an, of a typical investigation um, because they basically have to become social workers and they have to try to interact with the whole family and sort of generate a support system for this victim where previously there has been none in order to keep the victim participating in the process. So, as Rose learned the hard way, um, they have to give their cell phone numbers to these kids and they are getting calls at all hours of the night and day about crazy stuff that's happening in their lives um, because now the kid knows an FBI agent and surely they can solve any problem that I have at 3 o'clock in the morning, so I'm just going to call the FBI agent. Um, uh, it's not the typical relationship between uh, agent and witness in a case, and I'm sure lots of agents run screaming from these types of cases for that reason. Um, but, but these guys are really operating at a different level than law enforcement typically operates, as are a lot of the police officers that we have in the Special Victims Unit working on these cases. Um, what do you two think is the greatest obstacle to getting a victim to continue to participate in the investigation and prosecution of their pimp? You want to go first, Rose? Where do you want me to go? I'll go. That's up to you. All right. Um, greatest obstacle um, to get her on board is a lot of, some of the girls are like, once you mention, oh, we want to put this guy in jail, they're like, oh my God, I don't want to be responsible for putting this guy in jail. I mean, he took me off the street. He hooked me up with this bag. He gave me these shoes. And now I'm going to send him in jail for 15 years? Like, you're crazy. Um, so that's, that's one of the big obstacles when you like tell the girl, look, uh, you're going to have to testify in grand jury. Um, we're going to prosecute this guy federally. And you got to really walk them through the whole process. Because what they know is, oh, I watch Law and Order on TV. So it must be like over and done in 30 minutes, right? Or an hour, or whatever the show is. CSI. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the big things is like, they really think, all right, I just told them all the information. This guy's going to be arrested in, in jail within like, 24 hours. Well, typically the federal cases last could last up to two years, uh, maybe longer than that. Um, some of the more simple ones could be cut down to maybe six months or so. But just just kind of explain to them, explaining to a 15-year-old prostitute girl with numerous problems at home, drug addiction, mental problems. There's girls that have you know bipolar issues. Um, explain to her the federal court procedure and look you might have to testify somewhere down the line in court and you're going to sit there in this witness stand and he's going to be sitting there in his little orange jumpsuit or green jumpsuit and you're going to tell us all about you know what happened how he pinned you out and all the bad stuff that he made you do that's that's like a huge huge obstacle so 
Just, just to add to that, just trying to convince these girls that it's going to be okay, that, you know, I mean, I can tell them, yeah, you know, we're the government, we can help you, but, you know, this is a child, and even an adult wouldn't, you know, necessarily feel safe doing some of the, some of the things these girls have to do in terms of going to court and different things like that. A lot of adults wouldn't be comfortable doing. So I think just preparing them for what they're going to have to endure, and then on top of it, asking them, uh, you know, you can't go back into this lifestyle, um, and then finding out that some of them do is, I think, one of the biggest obstacles um, in terms of getting them ready for a case and getting a case ready to be prosecuted. So in light of that, if you could improve one thing um, for victims in the investigative or prosecution process, what would it be? Don't say find another prosecutor. <laughs> improve one part of the process? Yeah. Any no. sort of... I got it. This one's easy. Okay, um, I'm, and hopefully I'll get to show you guys this video. For me, the toughest thing, because I, like I said, I did have a girl I brought to the juvenile detention center. For me, it would be somewhere to bring them, a safe place to bring them that they can't leave that's not like jail. Um, I had a case where the girl's mother and father said, we're not coming. We're not coming to get her. She's trouble. We can't handle her. We have grandkids we're watching. We're not coming. So there I am at 2 in the morning at a police station with a 17-year-old girl who's drunk and spitting and screaming, and mom and dad aren't coming. So she was on probation, and the best option we have was a juvenile detention center. So for me, um, and it's going to be mentioned in this video, I'll show you, um, there's more funding right now, federal funding for victims of um, non-domestic, so foreign victims of sex trafficking, than there is for our own you know, teenage um, U.S. domestic girls. For me, having somewhere that's not DHS putting them in another foster home or juvenile detention center or some type of a shelter or a place that's safe that the pimps can't show up at and intimidate them and these type of things, that to me would probably be the best thing um, because even when they go with a family member, it's not all, it, yeah, it's a family member, but sometimes there's issues there as well. So just knowing that they'd have a place to go that they can get an education. And there are places, um, there's a lot of red tape that is involved with these places. Um, some of them you have to have the right health insurance, some of them you have to be on a waiting list. So I would like to see um, more places like that be available to our victims. Yeah, I, I agree with Rose um, as far as the, the most difficult thing is if you find a girl who's 14, 15, and she literally has nowhere to go, it's the middle of the night, it takes an act of God to put this girl into a home that's going to take care of her that night. Um, we have made good contacts with some of these places, but usually our contacts will go home at 5 o'clock at night. Uh, that's just kind of how it goes. Um, so in an ideal situation, uh, you know, I'd wish we had like a go-to place where if anything happened, we could bring the girl there. She, could, she would stay there and not run away within a couple hours. She would get her high school diploma. She would go on to Villanova and be a successful person. That's an ideal situation, but unfortunately, I don't think it's reality. Okay, so on that note, what do you think is the likelihood of rehabilitation for these kids and, and reintegration into normal society and normal life? I think it depends on. I really think it depends on the girl and how long that they've been involved in prostitution. Um, the Department of Justice did a study on all the data they have, and the average lifespan of a girl once she starts prostituting, whether she's 40 or she's 12, is seven years. They live seven years on average from the time they start prostituting, which is scary. So if I have a girl who's 13, I say, you know, you might be dead at 20. That's what our research shows. 
That means that, you know, between drugs, between crazy Johns killing them, between STDs, between the stress of the life, pimps killing them, seven years. So um, I think I would say that it depends on the girl and how long she's been involved um, and how is she addicted to drugs. I mean, we do see girls that get completely out of this, but a lot of them stumble back into it several more times or several more interactions with law enforcement or drugs before they get on the straight and narrow. I'm not really sure, you know, I don't have numbers on what percent get out of the lifestyle and successfully go through re rehabilitation, but a lot of them unfortunately do go back. We do have our success stories as well. Yeah, I think um, the chances of, like, say, a girl like I talked about earlier, May Lee, I think there's a better chance she's probably going to end up ODing on drugs or being killed by a crazy John or, or something. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's, like, most likely what's going to happen with her. Um, like Rose said, I don't really know what the statistics are as far as percentage of girls getting out of the lifestyle, but if, if you get them out of it early, I think there's a lot better chance. Um, like there's a couple girls that we just grabbed that were only in it for a few months and they're doing really well. They were placed in homes in Philadelphia. Um, they're going to really good schools out in the counties and they're doing well, getting good grades. Um, but I'm just constantly afraid that, you know, they're going to get back to Philly and they're going to get wrapped up in the same thing. Um, the longer they stay in it, uh, the more likely they are to get a sexually transmitted disease. They're going to get AIDS. They're going to get raped. I mean, there's one girl we talked to, she's now, she's a woman, she's not a girl, she's 28 years old, and she has been through everything you could imagine. And she looks it, too. She looks really rough. And she got into it around 16 or 17, and now she's in jail. Um, her pimp's out free. She's spending two years in jail. Um, she's, she, luckily, she never got on drugs, um, but... Like, what does she do now? She's got felony convictions. Um, she's been prostituting since she was 17. She's 28 years old. She's, like, hit rock bottom probably 50 times. And, like, she, she said to me, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to, like, who's going to hire me? I've got all these felony convictions. Um, so what's, what's the answer? Like, I don't know what to tell her. Um, I hope there's programs that we can get her into that will help her transition to some type of job. But then again, like... If she was making 1200 bucks a day, why is she going to go work at Wawa or McDonald's and make 80 bucks a day? You know, like, what's... So it's tough, but she's been through a ton of stuff. She's been in, raped numerous times. And sometimes around that age, like Rose said, like the typical lifespan is like seven or eight years. Sometimes if the girls hit like 27, 28, for some reason, like, that's the magic age where they finally realize, maybe I should get the hell out of this, and they hit rock bottom, late 20s, so. So I um, recruited both of you guys to this difficult work about um, three years ago, I think. Um, what can you tell the students is the most important thing that you've learned from working these types of cases? It's a tough question. Um, I think it's really difficult trying not to get too involved in the victims. Like, I don't know, you can, you can take a lot of this crap home with you. Um, I have a son that's eight months old, and I get phone calls all the time at night from different girls and different crap related to work. And that, 
it's really difficult because I want to be there and put job, you know, at the forefront of my priorities, but I also have uh, my own son who I care about, my wife. Um, so I think that it's, it's tough, like, not getting too personal and not like, oh, I want to save this girl. I want to make sure she's okay. I want to make sure she has food and clothes and everything. I think that's one of the most difficult things that I deal with. So. I would agree with that. And the thing I would add to that is just um, the thing I've learned really is that not to judge anyone because I tell these girls, listen, if I grew up in your shoes and you grew up in mine, you'd be an FBI agent and I'd be the one that's in, in trouble right now. And um, Also, the, the word prostitute, you know, like if, if I didn't work this stuff and I say prostitute, you get an Im image in your head, maybe somebody in Las Vegas walking up and down the street or once you see that these are children, um, you realize that there's no, there's no stereotypical meaning of that word. There's a meaning that people assign to it or we have assigned to it as a society, but I try not to judge people and I try really hard not to stereotype because I have had girls, we have done undercover things where we've gotten girls who have master's degrees. We've gotten girls who um, were nurses and were laid off and got involved in prostitution. So I just try and remind myself like, you know, I don't know this person's life. I don't know what they've been through, and just try not to be judgmental because you know society says, "Oh, prostitutes—they're—they're they're in it for the money. They want to be doing this," and that's what I've learned that that's not the case at all. Um, a lot of these girls, first thing they tell me is, "I don't want to be doing this." So um, I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. And uh, my final question, and then we can show the video if you want to turn it over to the group. Um, how has your experience working these cases been different than you? Most surprising thing? If you got one, go ahead. I think just like I just touched on, just who the victims are and how they're just real like people that, I mean, the fact that we have, I was shocked. When I first got told I was going to work this, I was thinking that these were going to be like girls from some other country that were here brought on a cargo ship or something. I mean, for me, it, it was shocking that girls anywhere from any background. The video I'm going to show you are girls from an affluent um, community whose parents make over a million dollars. Just the fact that anybody's child could be a victim. I mean, yes, there are certain risk factors that make girls more vulnerable, but um, just the variety of victims we have and, and the situations that these girls find themselves in, I think, probably was, was the most surprising to me. And then just kind of how, how much work it takes. You know, the hard part about the job you know, isn't what people think. It's trying to get everybody on the same page and get these girls the help they need and balance that out with getting them through the legal process because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to get involved and come to court, but they're going to continue to be victimized if they don't. So that for me was probably the most um, surprising that it was the most difficult. Um, I would say one of the most surprising things I've ran into is the overwhelming, like, how many pimps there are in Philadelphia. Like, you would think, uh, maybe there's a couple of them, but it's, like, never-ending. Oh, what happened? Let there be light. All right, good. So, um, I think, like, just for whatever reason, there's, um, it seems like there's never-ending supply of pimps who are taking advantage of girls in Philadelphia. Um, so that was really surprising to me that there would be this many guys 
who have this business plan of I'm going to recruit this girl and she's going to make a thousand bucks a day for me seven days a week. And another thing that's surprising is like I still to this day I I, I can't wrap my head around like how the girls don't see like all right I'm giving this guy twelve hundred bucks a day or fifteen hundred bucks a day, and then they like start doing the math and it's like this guy's making a crap load of money, um, like millions of dollars and they get none of it. Um, so that's, that's just one of the things that's really shocking to me is that the girls are totally giving these guys all the money. They don't really see anything out of it. Um, and these guys drive around in Lamborghinis. Um, they wear all the nice clothes, the $300 jeans, all the flashy stuff. They gamble. They do drugs. And all that money is earned from that, that two or three girls that they have uh, that work for them. So that's one of the most surprising things. And Mike just reminded me of one thing too, that you guys will think after this video, the fact that this is on the internet, it's kind of like it's, it's illegal to, to, you know, to make a bomb and leave it somewhere, but it's okay to make instructions on how to make a bomb. You can have that on the internet, but you can't you know, make the bomb. Same kind of thing, like I was shocked to find that you can just go to a public website and find an underage girl and have her come to your house or go to her room, hotel room for sex. I mean, that was shocking that like, it's not hidden, it's just right out there in your face. These two videos, uh, short videos I'm gonna show you, they're like two minutes each, are gonna show you guys what, how the problem used to be on Craigslist, that got shut down, now it's on Backpage. Most people never, never heard of Backpage. It's owned by a company called The Village Voice in New York. Craigslist got a lot of pressure to shut down their website, so it all moved to Backpage. Um, then there's pressure on them as well, but you know, a lot of people would say, well, wait a minute, prostitution is illegal, so how can they have a website advertising prostitution? So that's what was surprising to me, that these girls, adult or juvenile, are just out there on these websites. Um, and both of these videos will show you a little bit more about that. Teenage sex trafficking is moving to the suburbs. This week, federal prosecutors broke up a gang they say lured young girls into prostitution, and it happened in one of the country's wealthiest suburbs. For all those families who leave the cities to keep their children safe, it's an alarming new trend. Here's ABC's senior justice correspondent, Pierre Thomas. The Crips, with origins in Los Angeles, known for shootouts, drugs, and prostitution. You might not think you would find them on the neatly manicured streets of suburbia, but think again. Gangs will target anyone. This is a teenage girl from suburban Northern Virginia whose identity we are protecting. Federal prosecutors say the Crips turned her into a prostitute as a part of a conspiracy to force high school girls as young as 16 into sex slaves. The girls who were being recruited by this gang uh, were in many cases uh, girls who lived at home with their parents. Good homes in, in good neighborhoods. Gangs would go to metro stop schools and social media sites like Facebook to find girls. They would flatter them and ask them if they wanted to make some money. Once drawn in, they used violence and drugs to force girls into prostitution. Case in point, take the story of victim number five, age 17. Victim five was scared and tried to back out when she found out what the job was. A gang member slammed her head against the window of a vehicle. He then cut her across the left forearm with a knife and gang members raped her. I fear for them. I fear for them. I just hope they're just safe. The gang advertised girls online and sometimes forced them to entertain clients at this Virginia motel. According to federal prosecutors, the Crips solicited as many as 800 girls. Police were able to identify and save 10 teenage victims. 
This new disturbing trend, police say, is the latest evidence of the explosion of gangs and a sign they could be reaching into your neighborhood. Pierre Thomas, ABC News, Washington. We have some more short videos. A court date today for a woman dubbed the Millionaire Madam. The 44-year-old mom charged with heading up a brothel on the Upper East Side. Even... That's not it. <laughs> Federal law says that if you're under 18 and you're being sold for sex, you're a victim, not a criminal. That's the law, but for thousands of American girls who get arrested every year on prostitution charges, this is the reality. Belly chains, ankle cuffs, a locked cell. Chained up, oh yeah. Susan Roski is a public defender for the girls here. Is it hard for you to see them come out with belly chains like they are real prisoners? It, it's so hard. And I, I can't imagine being the parent of one of these girls seeing it. Society looks at them like they're whores, they're just prostitutes, not seeing them as children that are being manipulated and abused. It's pretty crazy if you think about it, but in counties all across America, the only place to put these victims is detention centers, to lock them up, to keep them from roaming back out onto the streets and back into the hands of their pimps. This is Fritz Reitz, and he's gonna give us a tour of the Clark County Juvenile Detention Center. This is the facility where these juvenile sex trafficking victims are being held. Well, unfortunately, there's not a lot of options in terms of resources and where else alternatives to put for us. The best resource our country has right now to take care of these juvenile sex trafficking victims, it's this. Three-inch mattress, cement. They don't have any pictures on the walls. No TV, nasty-looking toilets. They're locked in here at night, just like a prisoner. This is where 13-year-old Selena, who was sold for sex by a pimp on Backpage.com, is being held. It's the Clark County Juvenile Detention Facility. Nobody thinks that these kids should be locked up, but nobody wants to risk turning them loose. So, well, this is a good example of one. Judge William Voy is the family court judge in charge of Selena's case. He keeps an old case on his desk to remind him why these girls need to be safe. She was released on the February um, 7th, and she was found dead on um, February 10th. She was murdered and her throat was cut. You can always theorize that, yeah, maybe they'd be alive. But this one, I know it. I know it. So why do you keep this case on your desk every day? I keep it here because it reminds me that if I had that house, she'd be alive. Judge Voy is trying to get funding for an alternative to the jail, a safe house for the girls who cycle in and out of his courtroom. Judge Voy right now is driving us out to an area of town where they've been planning to build a facility for these juvenile sex trafficking victims. It starts right here. It's not a detention center, it's not an institution. You have bedrooms instead of cells. It looks like another wealthy homeowner in Vegas, right? And that's what we wanted it to look like. These kids 
are, are messed up in a lot of different ways, and they need a lot of help. Voy says private donors will pay for the land and the building. All he needs is $700,000 a year from the county to pay for probation officers. But the county won't pay. We can't get to the next level, and it's extremely frustrating. It's not just this county. There are almost no places for these girls anywhere in America. And all the federal funding for sex trafficking victims has gone to foreign girls. American girls have been shut out. Girls like 13-year-old Selena, now stuck in jail. Oh my God, that's the favorite picture in the world. I love my little sister more than anything else. Oh my God, I miss her so much. Selena wants more than anything, just to go home to be with her little sister. I was searching for a reason to be reckless. Today, Judge Boy and Selena's mom are trying to figure out what's best for her. I want to be with my family. I want to watch my little sister grow up in my and my defense. And when I go home, I swear, for the first time in my life, I'm sorry for the things I've done. And then I do anything to be home with my family. You said that with only one breath. So you're my best judge right here, because you know this child. Of course, I want my child to come home, but we need a plan. I mean, yes. I, it's not. No, I'm sorry, saying yeah. Uh, okay. And now she's saying all this, I want to go home, that's all I want. But she's not going home. Because no one can say for sure that she won't just run away, back to the streets, back to the pimps. <laughs> so are we going to be in here for like another month? I didn't want to go home. Selena's mother is burnt out. Terrified, Selena will run again and vanish forever. It's horrible. You hear everywhere of kids, you know, being picked up and you never ever see them again. So it's a horrible feeling. And no matter how many times that I talk to her about it, it's just like she's just not getting it. She's not. Selena's mother is a teacher and she's used to dealing with kids. But her daughter is a mystery. You know, just to have a kid that actually just goes to school and comes home and does their homework and, you know, watches TV, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's tough. I don't want to, you know, take away anything from her because she's great in her own way. It's just, I don't know, I feel like she's lost, to be honest. I do. Selena is now getting help through a court-ordered drug treatment program in another state. But her future is uncertain at best. There are thousands of girls just like her, caught up in an industry driven by lust and greed, now online, and better than ever, it's selling the girl next door. that in perspective 13 years old is seventh grade think about yourself in seventh grade and what sorts of things you were doing after school 
and contrast that with what's happening to a lot of these kids right here. Uh, pretty heavy stuff. So I've asked a lot of questions. I wonder if any of you have any questions. The agents or I are happy to answer any additional questions that anyone has. Yeah, if you have any other questions besides this specific topic, um, FBI related, um, U.S. Attorney's Office related, we'd be happy to answer. I, um, I don't know if this is outside the bounds of what we're talking about, but how prominent is this in Philadelphia compared to, say, otherwise cities like, say, Chicago and New York City? I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, Rose, have you seen a lot of the statistics as far as like recoveries and they, stuff like that that they do? Yeah, we have, uh, can you guys hear me okay? We have uh, Innocence Loss Task Forces in all different um, states, all different cities. And we definitely see, you know, if, if you're talking about a city like Vegas or somewhere in Texas where it's warm, you know, most of the year and there's outdoor activities and, you know, or there's a lot of like, um, you know, a city where there's going to be a lot of events like the Super Bowl or things like that, we see a spike in it. So. Um, Philadelphia, I'd say, is pretty high up there. It's not maybe the busiest city, but it's definitely probably in the top 15, 20 for this. Um, it's everywhere. It's in every hotel. It's in most expensive hotels. It's in the least expensive hotels. It's in every city. Of course, there are cities where it's less of a problem, but it's, it's a big enough problem in Philadelphia where we've developed a task force and we brought in our local partners in the counties and in the city to work on it jointly because we've identified in order for us to even have the task force, we had to identify that there was enough work out there. So, like Mike said, I thought there were a few pimps. There's mm -hmm. so many pimps in the city of Philadelphia, it's unbelievable. Yeah, there's plenty of work. And like Rose said, this is happening everywhere. Um, we have a good relationship with a task force officer that works out in Sacramento, California. And the cases that that guy has is, like, amazing. And I've never even heard of Sacramento. I mean, I knew it was a big city, but I didn't realize there was, like, that much prostitution going on. And pimps tend to shuffle these girls back and forth between different cities, sell them to one another, go on day trips. Hey, on Saturday, we're going up to New York to make some extra money. Um, and Sacramento happens to be in between San Francisco and Reno, Nevada, which is filled with casinos and lots of prostitution. So that's why that's a very active city. It may surprise all of you to know that the number one city for domestic child prostitution, the highest incidence in the entire United States, is Minneapolis, Minnesota. Does anyone know why? The Mall of America. Oh, jeez. Wow. The Mall of America is a heavy recruitment area for pimps to find 14-year-old girls walking around by themselves. Other questions? The, the other thing to add to that is, like, think about this. Think about the Johns. Like, what guy, a lot of the Johns we see are married guys. What guy is paying to have sex with, when you see these girls in person, maybe not on their picture, it's obvious that some of them are not 18. Yeah. These guys should say, uh, oh, my gosh, not only am I... Am I married? And is this illegal? This is probably juvenile. Yeah, you're looking at a freshman in high school but with a lot of makeup on. Like, a lot of these guys aren't doing that. So. A lot of these guys are seeking these girls out. Unfortunately, on the federal level, we don't really target the Johns. Um, that's something that, you know, our, our mission is very different. It's to get these girls out of this cycle and to arrest the pimps that put them in there. But we work with our local partners, and they go after the Johns. But there would not be a um, demand sure, for this yeah. if there weren't guys that were willing to pay for um, young girls, and that video I showed you guys selling the girl next door, if you Google that, um, it's a lot longer. 
the whole thing's online, they have a John school where they show you these guys, they have ski masks on, and they're all there because they've ordered young girls and they don't want to show their face on TV. And they talk about how they can get on Backpage and get a girl and quicker than they can get a pizza and they all admit that some of them are probably underage. So it's, it, that's a, uh, Selling the Girl Next Door, if you guys want to watch that, it's a pretty good uh, video, and especially this part about the John School. It's like unbelievable. So. And just to be clear, the advertisements don't say available tonight somebody under the age of 18, right? Because that would make them instantly apprehended by law enforcement. Um, they suggest that the girl is barely legal, 18, 19, 20 years old, and they're typically made up in so much makeup and with lingerie, and their bodies are already developed, that you might not be able to tell the difference. So the guy shows up, typically the guy says, you're 18, right? The girl says, yeah, I'm 18, and, and it goes forward from there. Um, and a lot of times the pimps get them fake IDs so that if they're ever arrested or if anybody ever calls them out on it, they can show this fake ID and pretend that they're of age. Um, so it, there are people seeking out minors in particular, but not everyone who solicits these children is seeking a minor. Um, younger prostitutes are more desirable because they're less likely to have diseases. They're, um, you know, sort of considered more fresh than a woman who's 25 and 26, and as Mike says, after seven or eight years in this business, you're looking like you've been around a while. Um, so the younger girls are more attractive to the men who are soliciting them. Any other questions? Good question. Yeah, Tron? Um, I have two questions. One is, are the majority of the victims that you deal with um, girls? And the second question is, how far along do you follow up with them? Like, do you, you know, when's the cutoff period Rose, do you want to answer that? Sure. And I will try. Uh, very few boys are involved. Are very few boys will report this. There's probably more male victims out there, but males are less likely. There's a worse stigma for them. I have had a few tips from the National Center and from Project Players, but I'd say 97% of the tips I receive, or 95%, are about females. I think there are some males out there. I think. And the research shows they are less likely to report, um, which isn't good. I mean, we have to figure out a way to get at that. There are boys. Um, I think, in general, they seem to be more tied into, um, like, sports-related things and interaction with, not always, but th that tends to be more someone they met through scouting or through sports or things like that. Um, and like I said, we don't, we don't have a lot of good data on the number of, of males. The second question. How long do we stay in touch with them? Do you mean like once a case has gone through, like after that point? Or it really varies. I mean, I try and keep in touch with the girls as much as I can. Sometimes they don't, you know, they don't always want to. Once the case is over, or once their part is over, sometimes as part of closure, they don't, they don't want to. So we kind of let them take the lead. But I mean, I always try and follow up with the girls. And I've driven 160 miles to a a school to go visit a girl. Um, twice now, and I'll probably go up one more time, and, um, you know, that's just something I want to do. She's not necessarily even, you know, going to move forward with, with the case, but, I mean, that's just, you know, Mike will tell you the same thing, something like, that we like to do, because we do want to know that they're doing well, whether or not uh, a federal case is, is you know, going to get prosecuted or not. Yeah, um, like Rose said, we want to see these girls succeed, and if if we can in any way help them, you know, a year down the line, I would love to keep in touch with every girl. Um, who we come in contact with, who need help. Uh, if, if we can do anything to help them out, I'm all for them contacting us. Um, I think Rose had a good point where 
when these, these cases are finally resolved, I think a lot of the girls have some type of closure and then they don't want to talk about it again. It's really difficult. It's a difficult subject. It's a difficult part of their life. A lot of them go through a lot of therapy and they just want to, you know, get that over with and then kind of like tuck it away and not talk about it again. So we might actually have to, you know, make them relive what they went through again if they keep in touch with us. of the difficulties you encounter when you're actually at trial and you're, and you're trying to elicit testimony from these, from these girls? Sure there's no there's... witnesses. <laughs> the judge says, call your next witness, and I have no one waiting in the hallway because she vanished, um, and she dropped her cell phone, meaning she ditched her cell phone, and uh, we can't find her. That's the biggest problem. yelling at us, where the hell is she? Why yes. isn't she here? That's the biggest problem. Um, but if you think about it from the victim's perspective, is there any motivation whatsoever to participate in my case? No. I'm going to piss off the pimp who <laughs> was prostituting me. He might come after me. He might come after my family. I'm getting paid, like, I think a $18 witness fee at most oh, yeah. <laughs> to participate in this process. Um, I think law enforcement are jerks, and I don't want to be around them. Um, and I am probably not going to get a better life out of this, so really what is the point? Um, so it takes a lot of effort on the part of the agents and myself to sort of keep driving home that message, you know, at the very least, you don't want another girl to end up in the same situation that you were in. Um, and that is often the one thing that sort of gets them inside. Um, once they've finally run out of steam um, to say, yeah, I, I really don't want this to happen to someone else. I can take a moment and say, this really is a horrible thing that happened to me. And that's the hardest part. That's when Michelle makes them cry. Sometimes I make them cry. <laughs> but she has tissues, so that's okay. It's not trying to make them cry. It's sort of trying to get them to um, step outside the very hardened persona that they have and the attitude and the denial and the resistance and the anger and see themselves as the child they are who has been victimized. Um, and I, I often have to tap into that to get them on the government bus <laughs> going down the street with me. So that's the hardest part. Yes? What is the reason that's given for all our most money going to foreign victims instead of victims in our own country? That is an excellent question. <laughs> it is. Um, unfortunately, I think international sex trafficking has garnered more attention um, from the media and within the department, and there have been programs in place much longer um, than these domestic programs have been in place. This really came onto the horizon within the Justice Department less than 10 years ago. Um, and there aren't a lot of social service agencies in the community, as you've heard, to help these kids. Um, so it's really a matter of like 
nobody in law enforcement realized this was a problem, right? Like, I'll say it flat out, most of these victims are African-American inner city girls. And the attitude of law enforcement 10 years ago was, eh, she's a prostitute, she wants to be a prostitute, I'm gonna lock her up, right? Nobody said like, wait a minute, this person's under 18, maybe they don't actually want to do this. Um, so that it's just taken a very long time to evolve and historically the resources have gone to international um, cases and international victims, but I think the tide is starting to shift on that because we're getting a ton more attention. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, um, we as the professors of this course have noticed, you know, there have been front page ads in USA Today, um, there was an uh, editorial in the New York Times, um, there are a couple things on television about this, um, so sort of suddenly everyone is like, oh my god, there's American kids being prostituted right here in the United States, um, and it's, people are really just starting to pay attention now. And yeah, like movies like Taken. Have you guys seen Taken with Liam Neeson? Like that is such a load of crap. <laughs> this this guy goes over and saves his daughter in like 24 hours. Like, come on. That that's part of the reason like this international trafficking gets so much more attention. Like movies like that. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. It was a good movie. It was entertaining, but it was ridiculous. And the attitude in this country is still that prostitution is a victimless crime. People think, well, what's the arm? Guys paying for sex. Let's to them. It's, it's a business transaction. It's a victimless crime. And those are people who don't see this side of what we're trying to show you guys today. That's still the attitude for a lot of, a lot of people. That it's a victim of crime. She wants money and he wants sex. What's the problem? You know? And back to your question, that's unfortunately the attitude of a lot of juries. So even if I get witnesses for a trial, there are people in the jury who are going to be like, she like wanted to go out and sell her body and she was getting something out of it, so who cares? And they don't want to return a conviction. And for me to get a conviction federally, I have to have unanimous 12 people vote in favor of guilty or 12 people vote in favor of not guilty. There's no sort of majority outcome. So um, public perception of this crime is a huge problem even for us to convict anybody. Yes, sir, in the red. I'm not a law or nurse student, I'm actually a nursing student. I'm actually a commuting student in a business school. What got me here after I read this in the newsletter is that I was born, raised, and currently live in Kensington, and ever since high school, I get off after class every day at the Huntington stop of the L, and countless times I've been approached by the Kensington girls. Um, trying to control the rampant violence and drug trafficking that goes, that's prevalent in the area. I don't have any faith in law enforcement to actually ever come into contact with these girls. Mm -hmm. And do you have any advice for someone such as myself as to, I mean, whether these girls are underage or not, I'll never know, but they all have that same look of desperation in their face. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice as to Oh man, that's a great question. Um, Kensington, as you know, is like has seen a lot of change over the past 20, 30 years. Um, but there's still that that drug, like it's everywhere. Drugs up and down Kensington Avenue is it's it seems like it's never going to stop. Um, there's guys selling needles. You can walk down the street, you'll get approached by ten different people for either sex, drugs, needles, whatever you want. You can get at Kensington and Allegheny. Um, I see where you're coming from is not having faith in law enforcement um, cleaning up the streets of Kensington I feel you um, we try to work with our local partners um, to try to you know make this 
you know, not like a losing battle. Um, and most of the stuff surrounding Kensington, the prostitution, everything is centered around drugs. Um, I think if we got rid of the heroin and the crack out of Kensington, I think most of the crime and everything else would just go away. But how do you do that? You know, at, at law enforcement has been trying to do it for years. Um, and it's just, it's a never ending battle. Um, what can you do uh, when you see these girls that are like freezing in the winter time and they're strung out, they, they're asking you, you know, come on, just give me 20 bucks or whatever. I don't have an answer. It's, it's a, that's a really good question. Um, I would recommend, because the pimp is probably somewhere close by, for your safety, I wouldn't go near them. If you want to help, there's an organization down in Kensington, the Covenant House. Mm -hmm. They go out every single night with meals for these girls and say, you want to come to the shelter? You want to? I mean, a lot of people don't even know about it. There are Covenant Houses all over the country. If I were to get involved, if I were you guys, I'm not trying to, to scare anybody, but right. a lot of times a pimp's sitting in a car watching these girls, and they may think you're a giant. I just don't want anyone, I mean, it's, I'm glad people want to get involved. I think the way to do it is through the social services organizations like Covenant House. They go out every night with meals, and they, they're, I mean, they put themselves in danger um, to some extent, the people at the Covenant House, but the pimps know them, so they know, okay, that's just the Covenant House giving these girls a meal. They're not as likely to, mm -hmm. to aggress them, so if you were with them or you wanted to help out that way, um, that would be one of the safer ways, I would think, to get And, involved. I mean, continue on, get your business degree, apply to the FBI, and then you can come do our job. You know, you can help us out, because we need help. We need as many people as we want. Or make you know, lots of money and then become a philanthropist and open a shelter. There you go, yeah. That's what I really need someone in this room yeah. to no do, pressure. okay? Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> yes. Um, what's on TV is like that guy that hangs around with Snoop Dogg, Don Magic Wan, where I don't know if, is, am I too old and corny for saying that? Probably. Um, they wear like goofy clothes and they have like a cane. That actually does happen. There's guys who actually do have canes and buy into all that old school crap. Um, there's a couple documentaries you can see online. Um, there's one called American Pimp, and if you Google it, YouTube breaks it up in like, or YouTube or somebody else breaks it up in like seven parts. I would say watch that because they interview a lot of the pimps. And typically, um, black male, I don't know, between 18 and there's guys as old as 75. Um, you know, one of the pimps we have is 70 years old. He's an older retired cop. Um, it's just, there's no like prototypical pimp. But if you had to put a statistic on it, I would say black male between 18 and 70, statistically. And uh, I mean, a couple of these guys that I've met, because we get to meet each other once I indict them sometimes, um, are really, um, a lot of them are really handsome guys, really articulate, really smooth. Um, you know, very good at identifying weakness in another person and exploiting it. Um, and so, you know, probably one of the most polished persons I have ever prosecuted wasn't for white collar business crime. It was a, a pimp I prosecuted out in Oakland, California. And um, as part of his cooperation with the government, because he was hoping to reduce his sentence, he agreed to be interviewed for a documentary. 
and a documentary on domestic child prostitution, which was later produced by George Clooney. But in any event, I didn't get to meet George Clooney. I got to hang out with a pimp for a day while, <laughs> while he was being interviewed by um, an underling of George Clooney. And um, so she's going through a series of questions, and she says, how do you, how do you pick these girls out? You know, like, how do you, how do you know that you're going to walk up to a particular girl in the mall and she's going to be the one who goes along with you? And he said, I can just tell what their vulnerability is. And he looks right at my female FBI agent not and me, says, not, not her, <laughs> this was in California, he looks right at my female FBI agent and says, take you, for example, no one ever told you you were pretty enough. And you could just sort of see her, like, with her as he said this to her, but he sort of like zeroed right in on, on what her issue was, and it was remarkable. Um, so yeah, there's a pretty big spectrum of, of people. I have a real question, I have a comment. <laughs> One of the professors of this course that is also not a lawyer, law enforcement or a nursing professor. I work in the Department of Communication. A lot of what they're talking about and the questions that I'm hearing, what I think is a way to help or to think about this problem is to not just think about it in terms of um, this individual pimp or this individual girl who is in this situation. They have to think about that all the time because they are working on very specific cases with very specific people, right? And those people are individual human beings and that's their job and that's what they do. But one of the things that we can do as people that don't have this kind of job is think about what we can do on a more systemic level. What's going on in this country that this many people are in poverty, that this many people are enticed by a man who says, nobody ever told you you were pretty enough? What kind of things are going on in our culture that promote those kinds of feelings for people that it's so easy to zero in on um, a girl or a young person's weakness, right? That, and I'm not saying that these aren't bad guys, right? I mean, sure they are bad people, but there are also systemic sort of cultural issues in this in this society that perpetuate this problem, right? Drug abuse, poverty, all of these kinds of things. And I think that's something that anybody who is educated at a place like Villanova has the power to be involved in that and to say, what can we do on this level because we can't all be these guys, right? So what can we do in those ways? And I think that's the way to sort of think about that as well as going into a second covenant house, things like that. I think both of those components are really important. So that's my spiel. I had to get it out there, so I'll stop. Uh, my question is kind of related to the profile of like the typical pimp is like, how do they get involved in this? Like, is there like a like a pattern that you see, like how they wind up in it? I think I think usually, they're like there's somebody that comes along, either someone another pimp who kind of turns them on to it. Um, we got one guy in Philadelphia who's kind of like the mentor to all these other pimps. Like they all go to him and he shows them how to do it. He says, here's the business plan, you follow it, and you're guaranteed to make money. Um, I think that's one of the ways. Um, I have a, a case I'm involved with in uh, Omaha that's uh, interesting. The pimp is, um, he was victimizing girls in Philadelphia, but they got arrested in Omaha, and his mother was a prostitute, and his father was a pimp. So we see that as well. Born into it. One of their parents 
usually the father was a pimp and they just pass it on. I mean, it sounds crazy, like, but it, that's that's another way that, that it's learned. Or through the neighborhood, like Mike's saying, like, things like that. Mm -hmm. A lot of the drug dealers are now saying, you know, like that video said, why am I going to sit out in the corner and sell drugs when I can just hang out in my Lamborghini and send some girls into a hotel and they bring all the money to me? Like, if, if you get pulled over with drugs in your car, you're in trouble. If you get pulled over by law enforcement and you have two young, young girls in your car, you say it's my little sister and a friend, you're off, and you're off. So it's a, it's, a, it's a safer commodity for them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's the easiest money going in the criminal world right now and the hardest one of the hardest crimes to investigate and prosecute. Mm -hmm. She's had her hand up yes. on the way. Go ahead. When you were saying that you had gone home to your phone, could you have gone off on app or like the potential gun to pay a for like with your local partner? Is she one of your students? Because <laughs> your instructor said the same thing to me. <laughs> I, you should. Um, That's a good question. Do, do you want to handle the legal? <laughs> yeah. Um, the way that the federal statute is technically worded you could prosecute a John under the federal statute. It's a 10-year mandatory minimum, okay? Which is sort of the equivalent to trafficking 50 kilos of coke. I mean, it's pretty high <laughs> in terms of the range, the spectrum of sentences available. Um, and I only know of one or two federal prosecutors who have used the federal statute to prosecute Johns. The federal statute is used to prosecute pimps. However, the district attorney's office has solicitation of a prostitute. That's, you know, like go-to crime. Um, so they can prosecute Johns for that crime. The reality is most of them are going to get probation on a first offense, even on a second offense, because our um, judges in our society still view this as, you know, market economy, <laughs> um, voluntary transaction. You're paying money, you're getting sex in exchange. So while it's illegal, um, it's in the, in the spectrum of crimes, it's not considered a serious crime at the state level. Well, it also comes down to a, a triage thing. You know, like we only have so many resources. Um, like when Rose starts getting phone calls, say she gets five or six phone calls, um, you know, we as FBI agents can't all of a sudden set up like a big sting and then lure these guys in and lock them up. Like a lot of the TVs might portray like we could do stuff like that, but we would have to get Philadelphia police meet up. We'd have to set up a location. And then we'd have to hope the guy shows up. And then if he does show up, we'd help he solicits. There's like a whole bunch of things that have to happen for us to like lock those guys up. We, do do we would love to We do do things like that, up. but I guess what Mike's trying to say is that they're usually planned. It's not me getting punked on a Friday night. Like right. Now, the thing we have to be careful about is like um, the rules are, are basically you can't, I can't put that ad somewhere like on, just on Yahoo. Not, it has to be somewhere that's predicated. I can't entice just some guy who would never back page is predicated because everybody's there for one thing. So in that aspect, we would be okay, but normally we'd have like a sting set up, and we do do these from time to time, mostly with the local police. Um, but you have to, you would, I would think you'd have to show that the person knew just because she looks 16. And even if, like we've done these things where we say we're young, we we'll say, you know, such and such, we'll get 75 calls, but a lot of these guys don't show up. And mm -hmm. for Michelle or anybody to charge, um, they have to, travel with the intent. They don't have to actually 
have the sex. They just have to travel with the intent. So if they show up with a bag with all these things in there, like an overnight bag or something like that, that's enough. But if they don't even travel, so none of these guys travel. Could I use these numbers later on, since I know that these eight guys called? Yes, but I think it would have to be done in a way that, that doesn't entrap any of these any of these individuals, because one could argue that they didn't know that she was 16. But I do like the way you're thinking. Yeah, this. and in the grand scheme of things. Believe me, that went through my mind as well. Yeah, my well, first I mean, concern was how do I get my number off the back page? <laughs> and then my second concern was, you know, yeah, but just bear in mind, that advertisement didn't say 16-year-old available. Right, right, I mean, it just had a picture of a girl who, who could have been. Yes, that's what I'm going to call you from now on. Thank you. Um, but, you know, you have to, I as a prosecutor have to be concerned about issues of entrapment, um, and I have to prove criminal intent, and in order to prosecute someone, they at least have to commit an attempt, which is to take a substantial step in furtherance of a crime. Um, so those are all sorts of things that I am analyzing when I'm looking at a case like that. And under federal law, if not the trafficking statute, it would have to be crossing state lines with the intent. Um, so like, like Rose said, we do sting operations like that. We'll, we'll put up a fake advertisement. We'll see if somebody calls. We'll say, oh, by the way, on the phone, just so you know, she's only 16 years old. Sometimes the guy will say yes. He'll get in the car and he'll drive to a motel. Um, and like Rose said, he's got a bag with condoms and lubricant in it, and we've got ourselves a case. Um, so we do do things like that, but that's sort of something we set up well in advance, and we got to get approval from Washington. We got to do all this stuff, um, but yes, we do do cases that way. Yes. Um, this is kind of like on a different note, but I know that we talked in our class a little bit about sometimes girls um, are actually trained or like made to think by their parents to um, firstly to distrust law enforcement and think that law enforcement are. Um, terrible people that are going to do bad things and they ever come in contact with them. Um, and then you guys have mentioned some things like in older generations, especially um, law enforcement, not like you guys, but uh, uh, who aren't as educated in viewing uh, these girls as victims instead of as stereotypical prostitutes. And then when they come in contact with them, like on the street, they're treated by the cop um, as the stereotypical prostitute, which just reinforces the girls. That already think are are taught to not trust law enforcement, so um, it's kind of a vicious cycle just in that just in that scenario. Um, so, what do you guys think? Um, are, do you see a transition happening in terms of um, the philosophy of law enforcement, or is do you think that there should be more specific education about human trafficking? Or? I think right now it's it's extremely difficult to tell a street cop who's been on the street for 20 years in Kensington or wherever else that, you know, that girl is not a prostitute, she's a victim. It's like, that's the biggest obstacle right now, I think, is training local law enforcement, the street cops that are out there every day, and they see these girls every day, and they have already said in their mind, that girl's a whore, I don't care about her, I'm gonna go look for a drug dealer. That's, the, I think, the, the number one problem that we have. And the DA's office and um, police training are trying to do like a training initiative where they reach out to these the street cops. But it's a it's a whole cultural thing, and it's going to be very difficult to like flip that and see these girls as victims. Um, so it's it's like an uphill battle, but we're trying. That was only one part question though. You had two questions, right? There was. 
And a lot of times it, it works on our advantage because we can say, well, we're the FBI. We don't, we're not like that. You know, like we can pretend like we're some super cool guys that they want to talk to. You know? We didn't just so. arrest them either. Like, right. So that helps too. Right. Yeah, in the back row. Um, I have a question about the Department of Justice. There are a lot of people who believe that if prostitution was legalized, maybe there would be safer conditions or... Um, there wouldn't be as many underage women involved. What would you say to that sort of belief? I think the opposite. I think there'd be twice as many underage women involved. I mean, I just, there's so many bad things that happen, you know, and uh, there's crazy Johns out there. Right in, uh, in King of Prussia a couple of years ago, they had a John that stabbed a girl 34 times in one of the hotels. And I mean, I just don't, when you have prostitution, you have so many other things that come with it that come in, you know, into play. You have people robbed. Now, you have people mm -hmm. robbing, you have guys that are not really Johns, but they're pretending they are because they know the prostitute has money. So I think all those type of crimes, that's just my opinion, but, you know. Yeah, I don't know if legalizing it's the answer. Uh, people have been saying let's legalize heroin and coke for the past hundred years, you know. I don't, is that the answer? I, I, don't, I don't think so. That would put me out of a job, so <laughs> I'll say no. <laughs> that put Michelle out of a job. <laughs> somebody in their family and they're like, holy crap, I didn't know this existed. Yeah, yeah. and then it's not like, oh, prostitute. Then they see it as a victim. But I just think that people don't realize that, and it's not a hot enough topic until mm -hmm. some senator or congressperson, like that one in Northern Virginia was very good because that was so close to the Capitol and there was all these people from million dollar homes and kids were wrapped up in this and it's a gang, so it was like, oh, you know. <laughs> but it takes things like that to bring this to the attention. I, mean, I don't know. <coughs> Answer, but that is one. There was um, the guy from the Covenant House was pushing this uh, everyone to help get this bill passed, and it was a simple bill, and it took eight years, I think, to pass. All they wanted was to put the national human trafficking number in every hotel. They wanted to make that like a law, and it, every it just for eight or nine years, and I, I believe it just passed. I'm not positive, but 
I mean, simple things like that, you know, that, mm -hmm. can, that can help. That's not obviously what you're saying, but that's just if, because a lot of these girls go through these hotels, you wouldn't believe they're torn more than, you know, musicians. And mm -hmm. if you're there and you see something that doesn't look right and you're not sure what to do, by the time you figure out what police department to call, do I call the FBI? You know, if that hotline number was there, we get that instantly. As soon as you call that hotline, it comes to my, it, the hotline shoots it to, they look at the city and they send it to the agents in that, in that city. So we get it on our Blackberry right away. So, I mean, I just think it's an, an awareness issue, really. And the hotels is like a totally different animal because their whole existence is to rent rooms out. You know what I mean? So we go in there and they're like, well, what the hell are you going to mess up our business for? We're making a ton of money off these girls renting our rooms. Um, so then you got to deal with those personalities. They're seeing it from a business standpoint of, I want to make, I want to have X amount of rooms rented out per night. So it's another issue we deal with. Any other questions? Uh, why not just stop or ban the websites that service vehicles for the prostitution outright? That's a great question. <laughs> great question. Um, that's actually kind of a, a heavy policy debate in Washington. Um, and most people in law enforcement would say, keep the websites up because that's how I find people. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very useful tool for law enforcement. What is likely to happen if legislation passes to outlaw any US internet service provider from being a conduit for this information is that they'll move overseas and we won't be able to prosecute them. Um, I can only prosecute people who commit crimes in the United States, and I can only bring in witnesses who are physically present in the United States. I have no subpoena power outside the United States. I have no prosecutorial power except for very limited circumstances. So if all those websites go somewhere else, the activity will continue, just as it does now, only I won't be able to get anybody for doing it. Um, so in law enforcement, you, you're more likely to find people say, just leave it alone. Yeah, keep back page up because we'll send a subpoena. They'll respond within like 24 hours. They'll say, here's the guy who put up the ad. Here's the IP address. Here's this, this, and this. Like for a 24-hour to a week turnaround, that's pretty damn good. So if they took that away, our, hand, we're hand, our hands are tied. Now we have to make cases otherwise, you know. It will continue. It will just continue with overseas Internet service providers. Mm -hmm. That's the Senate the last time you guys got. <coughs> I mean, something simple like this. How simple is this? But some of the hotels don't want to do it because then people will think that I can't stay at this hotel because there's prostitutes. I mean, just put it in. We're talking about a place for these girls to go, and we can't even get. This took, I think it just passed. I'm not sure you guys can research it. It did. It just, it just, it just passed. passed. It's on the I think it's been like eight years. So, I mean, that's one, like, we're talking about how to get involved. I mean, get involved from a political standpoint. You know, use your voice to get involved. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways that, that people can help. Well, and part of it, too, like, to answer your question about how, why are these barbecuing in jail if they're victims and this sort of thing, you look on the websites for some of these, these you know, the shelters that they, that they want and that they need, a lot of them have very strict sort of guidelines for who can go there. They I have, I have 10 beds. They yep. can't be on drugs. <laughs> well, how many of that, how, how many does that equal, right? right? I mean, they can't be on drugs and they have to be mentally stable. Right. Really? They can't have I mean, kids. that's a requirement for giving this girl a bed. And so, and part of that is because they can't be federally funded if, if the people they're dealing with, like there are rules about that, 
or if they're coming from private donors, like they're they're gonna they're gonna have rules about that. And so it's again the sort of idea of using your voice and saying those are stereotypes and that's not the reality of the situation, right? This is the reality of the situation. What can we create or what can we do to change people's perception about this issue that makes those kinds of solutions viable? That they do have someone to take these women to that they Right, and they can't have kids if they go into one of these places, and there are limits on what their criminal history has to be. I mean, it's going to be the rare victim who meets all the requirements to go into the place. Um, Mike and I have a victim right now who we both feel, if we don't have her arrested, she is going to be dead. Um, and jail is the safest place for her to be right now. That's like the reality. It sounds like it's the only place. But what I'm wondering is why the government can get away with that. Why this, you know, that, what you showed us on that little clip where that, you said we have the money, we have the land, all we want are the, you know, the, the, the social service people to work in the city saying no. I'm wondering why, for the children at least, I understand the overage is different, but underage, why aren't they forced to make proper accommodations for these kids? More resources for the overage. I have more shelters in the city. I can Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, no one will take kids. There are shelters that will take adults, but as soon as you say juvenile, they're like, nope, forget it. This is a big problem. There's liability, and the, these kids are kind of unmanageable. Unfortunately, I think universities and social services organizations and religion, they have more of a chance of doing something about it than if you're going to wait for the government because look at that video. I mean, I, I hate to sound like that, but. but uh, I think that what I've seen come out of universities and things like that, and, and just nonprofits, you know, on a smaller basis, you know, mm -hmm. tends to be more successful. Um, kind of going off, <coughs> excuse me, going off of that, um, we're like in the process of starting a undergraduate student group um, so that we can try and like do something. And I mean, we obviously don't know what now. We're like learning a lot about it. Um, but like you were just saying, universities have the power to like do something about it. So. We want to do that. So, if any of you guys who are undergrads or I know that graduate law students are also doing something, I'm with him. But if any of you guys are interested, please, um, I have like handouts and right. Yeah, right. Okay. Good. Any, anything that can raise awareness, because then people start opening their eyes and realize it's a it's a real problem. Um, that'll that can only help. So that's great. Well, thank you all very much, and I really appreciate you coming and paying attention to this issue. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.